morning. You can be seated. Over the course of my short life, I've known a couple of princesses. They all worked at Disney World. And one of the things that was fun about knowing them, not only was it being able to say things like that, but also that the training that a Disney World character goes through is, is pretty impressive and, and pretty particular to their craft and what they're trying to do. One of the, the, why I bring that up is one of the things that a princess does at Disney World or Disneyland is a princess never points at anything. So they might direct you in a certain way with their hands or they might use two or three fingers to point you in a certain direction because only wicked witches and evil stepsisters point at people in a Disney movie. And I thought that was fascinating. And it doesn't mean anything, but... (laughs) Because who cares when you're at Disney World? But they want to portray this, this feeling of happiness and this... This seat of joy that when people go into these, <laughs> these fictional gates, that, that life is okay once we're in that gate. And I, I was thinking about that this morning when we think about our text together, because there are some passages in Scripture that don't seem easy to consume. In fact, in many ways, they point right at you, whether by conviction or by warning. And our text does that this morning. If you have a Bible with you, I want to encourage you to turn to the book of 2 Peter. We'll be in chapter 2. In the first half of chapter 2, we've been going through a series from 2 Peter called Onward, where the author of Peter, Peter himself, is writing to a bunch of churches, and he's encouraging them to hold fast to their faith. But we'll see in our scripture this morning that the reason why he's encouraging people to hold fast in their faith is because evil is within their midst. So let me read to you from... God's word, the Spirit speaks through Peter when he writes these things. 2 Peter chapter 2, verse 1 says, But false prophets also arose among the people, just as there will be false teachers among you, who will secretly bring in destructive heresies, even denying the masters who brought them, bringing upon themselves swift destruction. And many will follow their sensualities, because of them the way of truth will be blasphemed. And in their greed they will exploit you with false words. Their condemnation from long ago is not idle, and their destruction is not asleep. For if God did not spare angels when they sinned, but cast them into hell, and committed them to chains of gloomy darkness, to be kept until judgment. If he did not spare the ancient world, but preserved Noah, a herald of righteousness, with seven others when he brought a flood upon the world of the ungodly. If by turning the cities of Sodom and Gomorrah to ashes, he condemned them to extinction, making them an example of what is going to happen to the ungodly, and if he rescued righteous Lot, greatly distressed by the sensual conduct of the wicked, for as that righteous man lived among them day after day, he was tormenting his righteous soul over their lawless deeds that he saw and heard. Then the Lord knows how to rescue the ungodly from trials, and to keep the unrighteous under punishment until the day of judgment, and especially those who indulge in the lust of defiling passion and despise authority. This is the word of the Lord to us this morning. Now the context of our passage is that it begins with false prophets and then goes into false teachers. After Peter was talking about how sure we can be 
in the word that God gives us, this prophetic word that God gives us because Peter has not only been a witness to it and the power that comes with Peter being a witness to it, but also it's truly that, that God himself guided the truth of Scripture. And then in the next passage over, Peter writes that there will be false prophets among true prophets. And this is what it was like in the Old Testament that we would read about. There were false prophets who had come alongside true prophets and and the Lord would guide his people and say, these are the things that you can look out for when you see false prophets. Are they doing it for personal gain? Are are their prophecies not coming true? What does their life look like? What are they saying in comparison that contrasts itself with the word of the Lord and these false prophets were people who were ultimately speaking out of their own mind? in contrast to what Peter told us in chapter 1, verse 20 and 21, where a true word comes from God himself, though it was written by men. So our New Testament parallels these false prophets with false teachers. And this isn't new if you've read any book of the New Testament or other parts of the New Testament, because there were always false teachers from within the church and outside of the church. And in a bulk of the New Testament is written with the, with the personality of, of warning or guiding churches as they were having enemies from outside the gate trying to come into the gate. And so what's unique about 2 Peter, especially compared to 1 Peter, is that 2 Peter is written to people who have false teachers from inside their own camp. We, we see this parallel in Jude in verse 4 where it says, For certain people have crept in unnoticed who long ago were destined for this condemnation. And so I think the main point of this passage is likely the the main reason for the letter of why 2 Peter was writing to his people, which is what makes it so instructive to us even this morning. Peter is writing because there are false teachers within the church. And so Peter has just spoken about how the truth of Christ is secured through personal and spiritual validation that he's given But then he will ultimately tell us what to do with these false teachers by identifying who they are and then by identifying what they ultimately deny. So we can not only know them, but by knowing them, we can trust Christ more in comparison to what they're doing day in and day out. And so if you have an outline this morning, I'm now at point one where I'm going to try to identify what these false prophets do. Now, if you're like my mom last week who never found an outline, it's on the backside of your bulletin. It's not a sheet insert. She was very confused, but she took great notes. I looked over them, but the outline is on the back of your bulletin. So first, what do these false prophets do? It's one thing to know that they're there, but what do they do? Our text tells us in in the first verse, it says, but false prophets also arose among the people. So the first thing that they do is they, they rise from within, not outside, but from within. I don't know about you, but if you've ever moved into a new house or a new apartment, new places make different noises. And your home is, or your apartment is supposed to be a safe place, but there might be cracks at night or sounds that, that cause alarm, that causes adrenaline to rise within you. And so right off the bat, Peter is telling us that these false teachers come from inside. And this isn't new to us. We would have been warned in Acts 20 when we went through that book that Paul says, I know that after my departure, fierce wolves will come in among you, not sparing the flock. And from among your own selves, they will rise and speak twisted things to draw away the disciples after them. 1 Timothy 4 says that the Spirit expressly says that in later times, 
Some will depart from the faith by devoting themselves to deceitful spirits and will bring others alongside them. So false prophets arise from within. Another thing they do is they, is they secretly bring in destructive heresies. There in verse 1 it says, who will secretly bring in destructive heresies. And another way to say this would be they secretly bring in their own destructive opinions or their own destructive viewpoints. A heresy is not only something that, that contradicts what is true in the scriptures or what's true according to the gospel, but a heresy is, is so drastic and so bad that if you actually believe what that heresy would say and you follow that to its last end, you would catch yourself on the way to hell. Now, what is surprising about this is not that we would look at this and go, well, how did people not see this? A heresy is so different than what the gospel is. But remember, Peter is writing about those who you and I would know within the church, who you and I would fellowship with or may even have over to our own community group or, or hang out with. And so he's, he's telling them to ground themselves in the faith because from within, destructive people come secretly. So they not only secretly bring in destructive heresies, but they most notably deny their master at, there at the end of verse 1, even denying the master who bought them. The, the word even there is assentive, suggesting that the worst heresy is going to follow the previous ones that were mentioned. So the worst thing that a false teacher could ever do is not just lead someone astray bit by bit, but actually that person themselves ultimately deny who Jesus is and what Jesus has done. Jude 4 tells us that for certain people have crept in, ungodly people who pervert the grace of our God into sensuality and deny our only master and Lord, Jesus Christ. Now, what's very fascinating and interesting about this sentence or this phrase is that these people are denying the master who bought them. And just so that you'll pay attention in about five minutes, I'm going to come back to that. But there's still more that we can grapple with. So what do false teachers continue to do? They deny their master, but they also lead an ungodly sensuality, and they lead in blaspheming his name. Verse 2, it says, And many will follow their sensuality. Because of them, the way of the truth will be blasphemed. They're living debauched lifestyles would be another way that this could be translated or written. Literally, it's saying that they were licentious. Their sensualities or their fleshly desires were not only being destructive to their own soul, but they were so convicted by these heresies that they were encouraging other people to follow with them. So per pursuing sexual deviancy started to wreck itself within the church. Or even worse yet, they were blaspheming God, reviling against him or treating his good news or him in particular with great contempt. Philippians 3 says that ultimately these false teachers, their end was their destruction. Their God was their own belly, and their glory is ultimately going to be their own shame. Paul tells us in Romans 2 that the name of God is blaspheming among the Gentiles because of false teachers and false converts. So they not only lead in ungodly sensuality and blaspheming the Lord, but they also exploit false words. By greed and for greed. So verse 3. In their greed they will exploit you with false words. You might remember who Judas was in the discipleship council of the disciples. Where, where Judas, we can see his motives bit by bit when reading the scriptures backwards almost. Where, 
where we saw that ultimately what, what showed itself in his perverseness was his own greed. He wanted money. It's incredible what money will ultimately not do to us, but will show about us more hauntingly. And it will actively destroy us. Ultimately, what false teachers do is they spread impurity within the church. So Jude 18 says that they said to you, in the last time there will be scoffers following their own ungodly passion. The, the perverseness that not only shows itself in pride, but also just to highlight again that the sexual pervertedness that comes alongside doctrinal impurity is something that Peter is showcasing here. I remember hearing for the first time in, in seminary where one of the things that is striking that we'll read in the scriptures is that sexual impurity is always on the back end of doctrinal betrayal. So when you think wrong things about God, it's not just something that happens internally, but it's something that fleshes itself out externally. And this shouldn't surprise us, especially because of what Second Peter has already talked to about, where he raised high the glory of Christ in the purity of the gospel at the beginning of chapter 1. And then after that, he told his people to pursue godliness. Because if you have a right view of who God is, the natural outflow of that will be a lifestyle of godliness. And on the flip side, if you do not have a true view of who God is, you shouldn't be surprised that the outflow of your life is ungodliness. It, it reminds us that in us is, is nothing good naturally. And this is the root of the gospel itself, that Jesus had to come and save not good people, not people who were on the right track, not people who were doing okay, and they just needed a little help. But he came to save people who were spiritually dead, who on their own could do nothing. And so we see this played out not only in a testimony of what God saved us from, but also in who these teachers are. So I think it's amazing what all they do. They're leading people astray. They're going for sexual perversity. They're defaming Christ. But he gives us a little hint, both in verse 1 and then in verse 3, of what's ultimately going to happen to these people. In verse 3 it says, Their condemnation from long ago is not idle, and their destruction is not asleep. Or at the end of verse 1 it says, They will bring upon themselves swift destruction. So we remember what the, the parallel of what Peter is doing. He's paralleling these false teachers in the New Testament from or for or against or alongside, a lot of prepositions there, alongside these false prophets of the Old Testament where these false prophets would come and ultimately the Lord would in due time destroy them and wreak havoc on their own lives. And what Peter is saying is he's trying to build up confidence by, by showcasing what's real that we should see and know and understand that there will be false teachers within the church but their destruction is coming very, very swiftly. So the question is, why would people follow this? That's a question for you and me, just like it was of the readers who would read this passage. Why would people follow these people who obviously are perverse, obviously defame Christ, they're known by others as false teachers, so why would people follow them? I found a quote by Alistair Begg who says, people are eager to sign up for something where belief is confused and behavior is excused. It's hard to draw a crowd where belief is defined and behavior is demanded. We know that in many ways, doctrine, the reality of Christ, and who God is will divide us from ungodly people. And that shouldn't burden us 
because of what our doctrine says about God, but then also what our theology says about what God wants to do for his people. And so we should be careful as a church or as people in community groups or just people at a coffee shop who are having friends with or having a great time with other people that the reality of Scripture, it will divide us. But that is the whole goal of what God is trying to do. He's trying to purify his people so that the last day he can look at them and remind them that they've done well in pursuing who he is. So why do people follow this? Well, the text says it's because these false teachers had flattering words. They were greedy. They were sensual. And they were attracting people to them. Now I want to go back and examine a little bit that word bought in verse 1. So we've talked a little bit, or I've talked a little bit about what these false teachers do. And one of the most particular phrases in there that they were denying the master who bought them. Now, why this oftentimes will freak some people out is it, is it raises the question, can God purchase someone or buy someone who will apostatize or leave the faith? Can the Lord have a grip on you and then through circumstances of life, can you flee that faith or go away? Because what the text would look like, although maybe not plainly, but it has the word false teachers and bought in the same sentence. And so we've got to look at that. I was encouraged and helped by Uh, Three men this past week who have explained this, I think, really well. The first one is Wayne Grudem says that the the word bought has a connotation of ownership to it. So to obtain or to acquire, he reminds us of what's written in Deuteronomy 32 where the Lord purchased or bought or delivered his people out of Egypt. And in that amazing chapter, Moses is singing this song and reminding his people, even sometimes in anger, Do you thus repay the Lord, you foolish and senseless people? Because in delivering God's people out of Egypt, there were many from within that camp who were later defaming who God was or were fleeing towards ungodly passions. And so he says, is not he your father who created you or who made you? So the the connotation here is that the Lord owns everything. And there are a people group that he's delivered out of great hostility. And so we would parallel that in in our new church setting or our New Testament church setting where where there might be people in here who think it's a pretty great place to be just on a Sunday morning. It's safe. People are nice. it, It feels normal to wear a jacket to some people. And so it's a great place to be. But even within that, there will be some people who even though in God's total total ownership of the world, there will be those who deny him. I think more clearly, John Owen goes on to say that within this text, there are certain things that do not rise to the top to help us understand what it means for God to own someone salvifically. So what John Owen says is that when you read this text most cleanly and most plainly, is that there's not Christ, Jesus, purchasing someone, but an ownership of God who owns everything. So there's no Christ in this text. And and in other places, we can parallel this, both in 2 Peter and in 1 Peter, to keep within the same author, where when Peter is talking about Jesus saving people, he'll often say, the Lord and Savior, Jesus Christ. Or he'll say, Jesus Christ delivered people. And here, he's just saying that a master bought them. And then going on, there's no words of blood or sacrifice or substitution or purchase so we can have greater confidence that this isn't Jesus at work in purchasing their lives. And then lastly, he says, 
that there is never in any case, in any case fruit being described as applied to these people. Christians are not only redeemed people, but they are people who show fruit for the rest of their lives because God has so worked in them that it actually changes them. And these false teachers never give any indication of, well, they were, they were really good people, and then they just had a bad month. Later, another person, Tom Schreiner, who's a professor at a seminary in Louisville, Kentucky, uses the word phenomenological to describe what is happening here. What he's trying to do and what he's trying to say is he's paralleling the, the visible church and the invisible church. Where there might be people in the visible church who identify themselves as Christians, but in reality, according to God, they were never identified as redeemed. And, and this is where the church actually starts working itself out in accordance with the rest of scriptures, where when false teachers or false converts are living unrighteously, the church, in the most loving way, continues to try to preach the gospel to them by openly and actively saying, brother or sister, I actually don't think you understand what the gospel is. I think what you're saying is, is actually a, a farce and, and false, and actually you are condemning yourself in your own work even into the point where they might separate themselves in membership, though they still align themselves in love towards those people. So what do we do with this phrase? Well, we have confidence that the Lord saves everyone who he intends to save, but that the church should be warned that there are false teachers from within their midst. But in all of that, the Lord is still promising and actively building up his own church based on the work of the saints as fueled by Christ in them. So the lesson here is that true church growth is outlined in our scriptures by a growth in purity towards an understanding and knowledge of who God is. So the easiest way that we can, we can counteract or go against what false teaching is is to grow ourselves in purity and to hope and build up for the building up of the church. Acts 20, verse 28, says, Pay careful attention to yourselves and to all the flock. He's talking to the elders there, in which the Holy Spirit has made you overseers, to care for the church of God, which he obtained with his own blood. So what do false teachers do? False teachers ultimately pollute the flock of God from within by connivingly denying Christ. And their goal is to bring others along. And Peter is writing to this church to encourage them that that is happening. But in the meantime, it is actually God who is building up his church. And he is an unstoppable force in doing so. So that's what false teachers do. Now, what do false teachers deny? I think what's, what's so cool and what's so fascinating about this text is, is Peter actually gives us examples from the past of not only what will happen to these false teachers, but ultimately what these false teachers are doing that makes them so condemnable. So Second uh, Peter is this intense, passionate last letter where Peter is encouraging people to see things that are true. And by seeing things that are true, they might see things that are not true or hurtful to the church. And the first example that he gives and how we can see what these false teachers deny is he gives the example from uh, Genesis chapter 6 where he talks about fallen angels. It says there in verse 4, it says, For if God did not spare angels when they sinned, but cast them into hell and committed them to chains of gloomy darkness to be kept until judgment. Now what he's doing here is he's setting up uh, three or four ifs, three big ifs, 
And he's going to justify why he's doing all that. But the first case here is he's talking about these angels who in the Old Testament were judged. And what's haunting about this is that they were judged because of their actions. And their actions physically were that they found women on earth attractive. And so they went and slept with these women. Genesis 6 verse 2 says, The sons of God, or angels as Peter calls them, saw that the daughters of man were attractive, and they took as their wives any they chose. Truly showcasing what a hard heart looks like. And he goes on to give another example of Noah. If it says in verse 5, it says, For if he did not spare the ancient world, but preserved Noah, a herald of righteousness, with seven others, when he brought a flood along the wor- upon the world of the ungodly, We're here, God is reminding us through Peter that God judged the ancient world with a flood and rescued Noah and his family. Now now this heightens a little bit because it's just another reminder that the Lord hated evilness so much that even though he desired to preserve a family, he obliterated and eliminated the entire world. So the Christians have believed forever that the Lord long ago flooded the entire world, and wiped out mankind, yet preserved Noah and his family and his offspring. And he's saying, if the Lord did this against ungodliness, look at what he's going to do against false teachers. And he gives his final case, or final if statement, where he says in verse 6, if by turning the cities of Sodom and Gomorrah to ashes, he condemned them to extinction, making them an example of what is going to happen to the ungodly. Now, one of the most visibly graphic cases in our scripture where the Lord rains down sulfur and fire on a city, wiping them out completely. The reason why he does that is because they are sexually impure and they are pursuing pervertedness and defaming who God is. And yet the Lord desires to preserve Lot, who he calls righteous. So the relation of the judgment of these false teachers to these false prophets or ungodly people of the Old Testament, is what Peter is saying to us is that if he's going to do this, or if he did this to the angels, and if he did this to those around Noah, and if he did this to those around Sodom and Gomorrah, then look at what he is clearly going to do to these false teachers. So to analyze these once again, just look at the angels. What the angels are ultimately doing is that they are denying God's glory. That's why they were punished. They were punished because they were denying God's glory. In verse 1 it says, They secretly brought in destructive heresies. So these false teachers are doing the same thing as they were denying God. Jude 6 helps us explain this. And the angels who did not stay within their own position or authority, but left their proper dwelling, he has kept in eternal chains unto gloomy darkness until the day of judgment or that great day that will come. The second thing that's denied here, when the world is surrounding Noah's call, as he was known as a preacher, these people, or in our case, these false teachers, are denying God's word. 1 Peter 3, uh, chapter 3, verse 20 says, Because they formerly did not obey when God's patience waited in the days of Noah, while the ark was being prepared in which a few, that is eight persons, were brought safely through water. 
So these false teachers also denied what was talked about in the, in the account of Noah where they brought in destructive heresies and they weren't listening to what true teachers were saying based on the original text of the true prophets. They were leading others in verse 2 in believing themselves in these false doctrines that the way of truth is actually offensive, not helpful to the life of the believer. And so like these false prophets of old, these false teachers were claiming something beyond the word of God and calling to people to believe something that was not being moved along by the Spirit. And then the third thing that they deny is they deny godly living and godliness. So the false teachers denied this, much like was the account of Sodom and Gomorrah. They denied it in verse 1 by being liars within the church. They denied it in verse 2 by leading in sexual unrighteousness. And they denied it in verse 3 by being driven by greed and wanting to exploit God's people. And what I think is so, so interesting and, and so well prepared by Peter is that he, he says, if this happened and then this happened and then this happened... They were denying God's work. But one thing that is pressingly true within the scripture, that though they were denying many things about God, there is one thing in particular that will not be denied on them. And God's judgment will not be denied on unrighteous false teachers. This if, 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 if buildup shows us that these teachers are truly terrible. And I think what's clear to hear within this word is these false teachers are in the church but they're bringing destruction on themselves in verse one these teachers are in the church but their condemnation in verse three from long ago is not idle their destruction is not asleep the same lord that we hear about in psalms where where it says that the lord is never sleeping his patience will wind up and end with some of these false teachers Now, as long as I can tell, we aren't told much of what to do here, but just to know of what is happening. It it just says that they're there. So there are many things that take away from this within this text. I think the first one is just an implication of this. We should be really encouraged as a church, even though that there are false teachers in the church. One, because we're not actually upholding this church ourselves, but it's, but it's Christ who is building up his church. It's Christ who is purifying and growing his church into a greater holiness to look much like himself. So we're to be encouraged from this text to live holy, hopeful lives, even in the midst of trials or false accusations or false teachers. Remember, the, the perspective of what Peter was writing to are people hating on Christianity or hating up against the Christian church. And also, we should be reminded of the gospel itself, of how easily shaken we can be when we don't focus on or keep learning about Christ. So I love how Peter builds this up. He starts in chapter 1, just reminding us this this bedrock truth of who Christ is. And then he goes into what we should expect. But but he also says in chapter 1 that he wants to constantly remind us of who Christ is because it's so easy for us to forget. And it's his last almost statement to people he loves that if I could tell you one thing before I pass away, he says, I want to keep reminding you of what the gospel is. Because in in focusing on the gospel, much like a a wayward ship would would hone in and focus on a lighthouse, we're to focus on what true light is so that we can stay away from darkness. 
It's how people find out what counterfeit things are. They know what is true and what is real so much that when they see something that's fake, it's just easy to spot it. And so here he's telling us that we should be reminded of the gospel, but not just for our own sanctification. But we should be reminded of the gospel because when we really examine this text, we actually were not that far removed from where these false teachers are. Remember, in our own case, we are dreadfully rotten, sinful people. And there was nothing about us that would make us bright or good or wonderful for God to want to save us. It's not that we had potential, or it's not that we were unique, or it's not that we were someone special. And man, if the Lord could save that guy, then that would show his glory to the ends of the earth. These people, these false teachers, may have looked like bright lights within the church. Maybe great leaders, maybe important figures, maybe well-learned men within the town. But they denied him. And before coming to a saving knowledge of who Jesus is, we were all separated in our own sins. And yet, in God's good, gracious work, he saved us to himself. And he brought us close to himself. And, it, and the text says, and the scriptures say, that he redeemed our hearts or, or made our hearts new so that when we saw him, we would call out to him as a savior. We wouldn't call out to him as someone anything other than someone who we want to love and who we want to follow and who we want to give our lives over to because of what he's done for us. So remember these false teachers, not so that you're you're just pointing at them and saying those guys, but, but be marveled at the fact of what Christ did in your own heart. That even though you may have denied Christ, he redeemed you for himself. Even though you may have been a part of something for greed, he redeemed you for himself. One of my friends who... um, planted a church in the Middle East a couple of years ago. I got to know him about five years ago because he he came to town as an attorney and he joined a church across town because he was an aspiring lawyer and he wanted to get great business. And this was a well-off church. And just by sitting under the preaching of the word, he actually became convicted that, that not only were other people bad, but actually he was the most rotten person in the world. And in such shame, he not only moved to the other side of town, but also joined another church and then was later sent out by a church as a missionary after the Lord saved him by exposing him as a false teacher, but as a sinner. And so, friend, be reminded of of what God does to awful, awful people. He redeems them, but he also judges them if they deny him. And this text exposes both, where it says in verse 7, And he rescued righteous Lot, greatly distressed by the sensual conduct of the wicked. For as that righteous man lived among them day after day, he was tormenting his righteous soul over their lawless deeds that he saw and heard. Most of us might go to a new town and want to take a picture. The case that we have with Lot here is that maybe when he would go to a new town, he would just sit at the walls and cry because of all the people that he would see defaming who Christ is. And so we should be encouraged to live a life that is holy and hopeful in God's work for him to return, but also to be reminded of the gospel, not only because it builds us up, because we ought to be reminded of the gospel because it gives us thankfulness because of what God has done for his people. So what this thing brings up, what this text and this passage brings up is this final judgment against God's enemies. 
In verse 4, it says that he would cast angels into hell. And he didn't even spare his ancient world in verse 5, but he brought a blood, a flood to obliterate everything. And in verse 6, he condemned Sodom and Gomorrah to extinction. And so we, we have yet another reminder of what sets in front of ungodly and unrighteous people. The Bible is clear. What sits in front of ungodly and unrighteous people is a swift destruction and a placement in hell. The Bible is not silent on the issues where unbelievers are taken into a punishment after their own death, but that's not even the worst of it. They will later be judged in the midst of everyone before a righteous king, Jesus himself. Judgment will be given to Jesus to administer against evil and unrighteous people. And his judgment will be final. And the scriptures say it will be awful. Almost this building up case of the fallen angels or what happened with Noah or what happened with Lot. That, that the case of final judgment will be even worse than that because the Lord is patiently waiting for his final judgment. And so the call on you if you're not a Christian is that you frankly do not have much time. People thought they had a lot of time around Noah and then the rain came. And then they thought it would only go up to their ankles and then they floated away in death. They thought they would have enough time to pursue their fleshly desires in Sodom and Gomorrah because life is all about having fun, isn't it? And then fire from the sky came down on them. So friend, this, this text, if you're not a Christian, it should stick out in your face and point at you for the judgment that is going to come on these false teachers is actually the judgment that is going to come on all of the ungodly. Peter is saying that one of the things that we can hope in as a church is that the Lord will return as the righteous judge who will bring his people to be with him forever and ever. And that should haunt people who are outside of these gates. Now, it's an encouraging time for Christians because of what that means when God judges the ungodly. Because when God judges the ungodly, he actually preserves and builds up a place for his own people. Revelation chapter 21 shows us this amazing picture of what it will be like when the Lord finally and fully returns. It says, And then I saw a new heaven and a new earth. For the first heaven and the first earth had passed away, and the sea was no more. And I saw the holy city, New Jerusalem, coming down out of heaven from God, prepared as a bride adorned for her husband. And I heard a loud voice from the throne saying, Behold, the dwelling place of God is with man. He will dwell with them. And they will be his people. And God himself will be with them as their God. And he will wipe away every tear from their eyes. And death shall be no more. Neither shall there be mourning, nor crying, nor pain. Anymore for the former things have passed away. Peter is writing this letter to showcase what is really happening within the church. But by doing so, he reminds us of what our hope is truly in. And that Jesus is on his throne ruling and reigning. And he's going to come back for his people. In studying this text, I was reminded of an old hymn called God is Still on His Throne, where it says, Burdened soul, is your heart growing weary with the toil and the heat of the day? Does it seem that your path is more thorny as you journey along life's way? Go away in secret before him. Tell your grief to the Savior alone. He will lighten your care, for he still answers prayer. God is still on the throne. 
God is still on the throne and he will remember his own. Through trials may press us and burdens distress us. He will never leave us alone. God is still on the throne. He never forsaketh his own. His promise is true. He will not forget you. And Peter is writing to his people to remind them that Jesus is still on his throne. And that though the world may seem like it's pressing up against them, they have a hope that cannot be shaken. In these words of false teaching, as they're infiltrating the church, Peter makes two promises to his people that God will punish the guilty and God will be just in rescuing those who are his. 